Well, let's stipulate that even in our inflationary times, $500 billion a year in spending is a lot of money. And that's today's level of annual global spending on cloud services. And that's before artificial intelligence lights a fire under it all. So we're going to talk again about both AI and the cloud, not because AI companies are almost single-handedly propelling all the stock market gains in recent months. I mean, NVIDIA stock is up 250% this year, riding the wave of AI chip enthusiasm. You might you might think it's a bubble. I mean, I don't know about the stock market being a bubble, but AI is not a bubble. But stock stock prices are a whole different game. Anyway, NVIDIA's market caps now blown past the trillion dollars. So they've joined the elite club of a half dozen companies that are valued at that stratospheric level. And of those half dozen, all but one are tech giants. The outlier, uh, drum roll, some of you may know this, is Saudi Aramco, an energy company. And that has some relevance to the topic that we're going to deal with in this episode. What we're going to talk about specifically are the energy implications of the infrastructure of artificial intelligence and, of course, in the cloud. You know I've talked about the cloud before, and you know I've written a book about the cloud. So, And we've talked a couple of episodes back about the energy appetite of AI, but since then, I've been doing more research on this issue, and I've got some new delicious findings for you. And, and since the last time we talked about the energy cost of AI, we've witnessed something rather interesting, which is the release of an epic, massive, 18,000-word-long White House executive order that specifically addresses the threats of artificial intelligence. If you haven't seen that uh, executive order or read it, uh, it is tediously long, but I put a hyperlink, and I'm not going to read it to you. So, I put a hyperlink uh, to it at uh, the webpage for this podcast, so you can find it. But using Dr. Google, of course, it pops up at the top. It's quite an epic exercise in government speak and uh, instructive diktats about what to do about artificial intelligence. Uh, the order's title sort of is self-explanatory. The title of the order is "The Safe, Secure, and Trustworthy Development." and use of artificial intelligence, end quote. I'm going to focus on um, the use of AI, and as I've said, the infrastructure that makes it possible to use it. By analogy, we're going to focus on the energy consumed by the use of aircraft, not so much what we use the aircraft to do. And that analogy is pretty relevant, as I'll explain. And there's a, there's a lot to the story. Um, some of it's sort of te technical, so uh Try not to get too deep in the weeds on the technical stuff. Some of it's political. Um, and some things are pretty obvious once you state them. So, so bear with me. Let me let me start briefly with the politics, though. I'm not trying to be political. I'm talking about the politics slash policy. And, and often in Washington policymaking, by the way, I'm willing to be political. It's just not the goal of my podcast. I'm not, I'm not looking to be political. I'm trying to focus on technology and policy, uh, which is relevant to the politics of any party. So anyway, back. Back to, to Washington and policymaking. Here's an observation for me to think about. The, the evidence of the power of lobbying, the power of lobbyists, is not what ends up included in legislation or executive orders, but often it's what's left out. 
And rarely has there been a more naked exhibition of the power of lobbying as we've witnessed in the October 30, 2023 executive order on artificial intelligence. In that 18,000 words of that order, and it, by the way, it's a staggeringly long, but even by historic standards of any such orders, but in those 18,000 words, one finds no mention whatsoever, not even a nod to the energy and thus climate implications of artificial intelligence. Now, let me be clear, the word climate does show up in that order, but just four times. I mean, the word climate shows up four times in all those 18,000 words. And all four times, the word climate shows up in a block of about 180 words that direct the Secretary of Energy to produce, within 180 days, by the way, ironically, to produce a roadmap to use AI to improve planning and deployment of alternative energy in pursuit of climate goals. Not a word, not a peep, but the voracious and rapidly expanding energy appetite and thus cloud footprint of artificial intelligence, the cloud climate footprint of artificial intelligence. I mean, this is really quite remarkable. Uh, it's not because the, uh, the cloud and AI use a lot of energy, and I'll get more of that in a minute. It's remarkable because this administration is promised and it's delivering on what the State Department has called, and the president has used the term, a whole of government approach to climate change. I mean, get back to airplanes, for example. There are climate plans and directives for aviation that have been issued by the FAA, the Department of Energy, the Department of Transportation, just to name a handful. I mean, this is a White House that hosted a summit last year to discuss, and I'm quoting, climate delayism, not climate denialism, but climate delayism, you know, big national summit of experts, scientists and sociologists and psychologists to talk about delayism. I mean, we're being urged everywhere to be aware of our energy inducing behaviors and to alter them around pretty much everything because of climate footprints of everything from flying and driving to buying burgers, owning pets. I mean, this administration's EPA is working vigorously with California to force railroads to use battery-powered trains instead of diesel-powered locomotives. I mean, consider this is the community that, that is the, the energy-obsessed community that's chasing carbon efficiency that points out that we need to use more diesel-powered trains instead of trucks and aircraft to transport goods because trains compared to trucks are 10 times more energy efficient even when they use diesel fuel. So, but that's not enough. We're gonna to have to make them battery powered trains. Let me give you a context uh, for the numbers here. So a billion dollars, because I've put it in dollar terms, because do dollars are, are what are, me are a measure that we can get our arms around, so to speak, rather than um, you know, hardware metrics. But a billion dollars spent on shipping goods by rail, ton, you know, ton miles. If you spend a billion dollars shipping by rail instead of shipping by truck, you can cut 5 million tons of CO2 emissions compared to using the trucks. And that's using diesel fuel in both because tr you know, trains are just so efficient. Or I'll put it, put it this way. Every, every billion dollars of ton miles of shipping by rail emits about a half million tons of CO2. Every billion dollars of ton miles spent 
by by truck is five million tons of CO two. Now, of course, the problem with forcing um, the ton miles to be on trains with batteries instead of diesel electric. These are hybrid electric trains, by the way. They use diesel fuel to make electricity to power the train. So they're already electric powered trains, just they burn diesel to make the electricity. But to force them to become battery powered trains, which is the goal in California, which will impact the whole country if California and EPA has its way, is the batteries are up to the job. Uh, they're just, it, it, it's, uh, there's probably no other word to use. It's kind of crazy to think you could force all the trains to become battery powered. It'll be crazy expensive, crazy in, uh, inconvenient. And the size and scale of the batteries is off the charts huge. It's hard as it is to push cars around by batteries or semi-trailers. It's far harder to push trains around with batteries. Anyway, not to go down that that uh, rabbit hole. The point of that is, and I said, as I said in many, many earlier episodes, and it always bears repeating, everything, not some things, but everything consumes energy. Every product is manufactured, every service, every activity in civilization uses energy. And while that upstream energy uh, is generally hidden from day-to-day life, it's real. It's And it's the related fact is that over 80% of all the world's energy, and all the world matters, by the way, because energy is used to make many things elsewhere to bring them here. So it's relevant that 80% of all the world's energy production is supplied by hydrocarbons, oil, gas, and coal. So despite $5 trillion of spending over the last 15 years, we're still getting only about 4% of global energy from wind and solar. So it's a hydrocarbon world. And that's just the reality. And despite all the money that's been spent, despite the hyperbole and all the language, this is relevant to AI and computing because if you think about reducing everything in, it, it, to dollars and carbon dioxide, you unavoidably are talking about using oil, gas, and coal somewhere. And one could calculate the amount of oil, gas, and coal used to achieve certain economic activities. And therefore, one can calculate the carbon footprint, which will bring us to the AI and data center by way of example. And let's put it, let me come back to the money uh, to give context of why we're going to be talking more about AI in the cloud and a, a sense of why it's really remarkable. It's, I mean, it's really astonishing not to see anything about climate uh, in the executive order about artificial intelligence. As I said, and give you some ballpark numbers that I've been I've been uh, researching and calculating. As I said uh, earlier, if you spend a billion dollars uh, freight ton miles by rail, that leads to about a half million tons of CO2 emissions. So just there's a billion dollars spent to buy freight ton miles, you, you emit half million tons of CO2. Spend the same billion dollars, say buying cars, conventional cars. Well, that billion dollars spent buying those conventional cars will lead to about a million tons of CO2 being emitted by operating those cars. You spend a billion dollars buying beef. Beef is an agricultural activity that causes CO2 emissions. So the billion dollars buying beef induces upstream CO2 emissions about 2 million tons. So same billion dollars now worth the 2 million tons. A billion dollars spent buying pet dogs at the average price of a pet dog, uh, that leads to about 2 million tons of CO2 emitted as well. Kind of interesting. If you spend a billion dollars buying new jet aircraft, 
that's turns out over a decade running those aircraft, 5 million tons of CO2 are emitted. And by the way, the world spends about 150 billion a year building and buying and selling jet aircraft, so big numbers. And that brings me back to the core analogy, you know, comparing aviation and artificial intelligence. Every billion dollars spent on building data centers at the core of the cloud, and, and before we amp them up with AI, but today's data centers, every billion dollars spent on, on data centers leads to about 20 million tons of CO2 emissions over the coming decade, on average. And this is the kicker. Global spending on building data centers is already running equal to global spending on building aircraft. And spending on data centers is growing faster than spending on aircraft. And that's all before the AI boom that's accelerating global spending and energy use in the cloud. None of this, by the way, is a mystery, as I said earlier, podcast on this subject. It's not a mystery to the artificial intelligence computer community at large. They they know that AI is a voracious, voracious energy user. You know, Wired Magazine, that's the magazine launched the dawn of the enthusiasm for the internet. Wired Magazine had a recent headline, I quote, the generative AI, that's what it's called, generative AI, because it you know generates in loops. The generative AI race has a dirty secret. What do they mean by that? Well, they mean it uses lots of energy. I mean, the technical literature is literally exploding with new analyses and proposals and forecasts about the energy appetite of AI and what to do about it. That's why I was saying I've been doing a lot more research on it, and it's because there's just so much so much coming out of the technical technical literature. Again, for context, the, the data, you know, data center is filled with racks of electronics. There's a, a picture of what a data center is. It's like a Walmart-sized building full of, of, of racks of electronics that do one of three things. They move bits, so it's the communications. They store the bits, it's the memory. And they process the bits, you know, with computers that do conventional logic or machine learning, artificial intelligence. The electronics are held in things called racks. The racks are metal frames about the size of a refrigerator in a household that's just jam-packed with hot silicon. A single data center can have hundreds, even thousands of those racks. And each rack has an incredible energy appetite. If if that rack, remember a refrigerator-sized rack of silicon, if it's full of AI chips, inference chips, machine learning chips, that one rack uses as much electricity each year, typically as 150 Teslas use in a year, one rack. And remember, that's hundreds and thousands of racks per data center. And the world has thousands of data centers and we're building thousands more yet. I mean, that's exactly why you find analysts that are writing about AI um, worried about it. In fact, a recent paper uh, from a group at Google and UC Berkeley uh, wrote, and I quote, uh, they, they, they want the AI community to quote, push for clear, transparent monitoring and reporting of AI energy use. Some of that's happening in the technical community, but by and large, it's not happening. And and not to be unfair, it's it's happening. It's not happening in part because it's very hard to be clear, transparent, and monitor and report. It's not hard to be clear. Well, some for some people, it's hard. It, it's not hard to be transparent in the technical literature, but what's not happening is it's not translating into the public domain. Uh, you you could color me cynical by saying, in many cases, it's. We're now seeing a lot of, about this because the facts are, to use that word, inconvenient. 
hence the utter absence of any mention, not even a scintilla of a mention of the climate footprint of AI in that executive order I mentioned. I mean, the whole of government approach to carbon dioxide emissions, again, encompasses your pets and vacations and your food and your home's footprint, your car, but not using AI for making cool pictures or composing sonnets or in business for making work easier or in research um, for new discovery. Like to, be, to be fair, the AI engineering community thinks there should be a lot more attention paid to this. Many of them do. In fact, there's a whole movement called the Green AI Movement. The problem with green AI, well, the green AI movement and the the goal as stated, which is to ensure that AI is quote unquote green, it's it's not that you can't make AI more efficient. It's that it's the implication that it will not lead to high energy use and high carbon dioxide emissions, a big climate footprint for AI. The problem is really in three parts. First, the the green AI community proposed that AI get its grid fuel from green energy, mostly wind and solar. Well, it won't. Second, the blistering pace of AI growth, the growth in AI energy use, they're proposing will be moderated, moderated by efficiency, by making it far more efficient. It won't moderate it. It'll accelerate it, the overall energy use. And third, I would say the problem that the green AI community has it's clear in reviewing the literature, is that nobody has any idea where it's going. I mean, you just don't. Uh, it's a, we have a broad idea with this. It's, it's growing fast, but no one really knows and understands the use cases yet, how much it will be used, which is really deeply relevant. So I'll get to it. Let me expand on each of these three realities. The first point that energy used by AI uh, can be made greener by getting its electricity from green grids, of course, is self-evidently true if you state it that way, but it's kind of an irrelevant statement for a very simple reason. On average, as I've said, as that earlier, global energy is su supply is dominated by hydrocarbons, and it will be for at least a decade or more. And the fact that AI is infusing everything in the world means that the infusion to the broader economy means that the electricity that AI uses is going to be the electricity that's provided in general. Not specifically because you declare you're getting it from a green grid. It's just a question of what those grids are and what they will be for the next decade or two. And that will tell you the kind of energy that will be fueling AI. It's not going to be a special case. It's going to be a general case because it's a general purpose technology. And as I pointed out in other podcasts and many speeches and writings, even the optimistic forecast from the International Energy Agency, their goal for 2040, and by the way, it's a goal that assumes that every nation will accelerate their, their green wind solar spending plans, even though they have slowed their plans, but it assumes they'll accelerate them. Even that goal in the IEA forecast for 2030, so that over two thirds of the world's energy still come again, 20 years out from now from hydrocarbons. So the hydrocarbons are infused in the economy for a long time. I mean, it, everyone knows that, which means hydrocarbons will be infused in AI for a long time. So whatever the footprint is of the kilowatt hour, it's going to be the footprint for AI and you'll want to just count, just need to count kilowatt hours. In fact, the IEA just recently put out a, a new forecast on oil demand and natural gas use and they're, they continue to see them rise for the decade. Yeah, they think oil use will peak a decade out. Okay, they could be right. I think they're wrong. 
It's irrelevant. It's not going down. For the next decade, it's going up. So that during the decade of massive AI expansion, hydrocarbon use is going up, not down. And of course, there's the idea of emissions trading, you know, credits, you, you know, the data center in one location buys, invests in wind farms in another location or another country and bolts the credits on their data center to say that it's a green data center. And, you know, that's a, essentially a green indulgence. It's it, it, it doesn't change the physics facts that that data center is using the power from that grid and you're funding a, a windmill somewhere else. Fine. It doesn't change the fact that wind and solar Combined today, supply 4% of the world's energy and, and probably will double or triple in the next decade or so. And th that's great, but let's still do the math. 12% of world's energy with hydrocarbons, well over two thirds. So what this issue distills to is that AI, artificial intelligence, is like everything else in energy terms. It's most assuredly not like everything else in commercial terms, but in energy terms, it's just like everything else. How we manufacture machines, operate them, is not unique to AI, except in a sense that AI rivals the most energy intensive machinery ever built, ever built by humanity. The second point that's sort of framed in the green AI community and the most commonly made proposal for those uh, who are worried about you know, accelerating climate change is that the uh, energy appetite of AI machinery and the algorithms that run the machinery they can be tamed. They can be more efficient. They can be made aggressively more efficient. Uh, use less compute per logic or inference operation, and therefore less energy per logic or inference op operation. Of course, that's true. I mean, that's that's what's been going on. It's going to continue continue to go on. Engineers will will be and already are rapidly improving the energy efficiency of AI chips and AI methodologies. In fact, just last month, IBM released a production version of a brand new AI chip they call Northstar. And it's been nearly a decade in development. So that's typical in this field of the overnight success. The IBM chip is uh, faster than the fastest NVIDIA chip and five times more energy efficient. I mean, that's a big deal. Uh, maybe that explains IBM's 10% stock jump in the last month. I, I don't know. But that doesn't come close to the 200% stock gain that NVIDIA has seen over this uh, calendar year. Anyway, th that's another story, as I said. So Google researchers are eager to point out that that's just the beginning. I mean, that's that's a, you know, 5X is a lot, but it's not enough. Google researchers believe, and they've published uh, a deep analysis, which I, which I read, excellent report, looking at all the different ways that one can improve the... Uh, operational and energy efficiency of the AI machinery and the AI algorithms. Remember, the algorithms um, are not you know, straightforward. It's just a one plus one equals two. There's all kinds of uh, complex mathematical ways to um, get to machine learning, the, to have the machine do the generative, the repeated tasks and ways to get to accuracy and precision. So there's lots of work going on there. And they've claimed that thousandfold improvement is is visible in the efficiency of AI machine learning. I'm sure they're right. I I think that'll happen. In fact, I hope I hope that'll happen. In fact, I I hope they do a lot better than that. But they got a long way to go to to match the 10,000-fold improvement in energy efficiency in conventional computing that happened since the 1980s. And, and to remind to remind everyone this the 10,000-fold improvement in energy efficiency since the 80s didn't lead to a reduction in overall energy use for computing. 
It increased the overall energy use for computing. It increased the overall use for computing. In fact, you can state it differently. If it weren't for the 10,000-fold improvement in energy efficiency, there would not have been the computer era and cloud era that we have today. I mean, economists give this, um, this phenomena the term the rebound effect, right? You improve efficiency. The improvement in efficiency causes a rebound, that is, the amount of demand for the product or service grows faster or at least as much as the reduction in improvement in efficiency because you've made the thing cheaper, so the market rebounds by consuming more. Well, the radical reduction in in, in uh, compute energy use, uh, energy costs, has had a massive rebound effect. <laughs> so again, that's the whole cloud air because of the reduction in energy use per com computer logic operation. That's the, that's the reason we have the state of affairs we have today. Again, I covered that in some detail a couple of podcasts back if you, didn't, if you didn't listen to that one. So the point I want to make here is if we got to the state of affairs we have today where a 10,000-fold improvement in compute energy efficiency since the 80s has led to a situation where the total amount of energy used by computing was essentially irrelevant to where today it rivals global aviation, why in the world would you think the outcome will be different over the next 20 years as we get a 1,000, maybe 10,000-fold improvement and machine learning and AI energy efficiency. Why, why would the result be any different? In fact, it won't be any different. It'll be exactly the same. So th there's something really intriguing about this whole AI machine learning and inference that's different though than conventional computing. And that is in machine learning, you have a two-step operation, which is kind of like Come back to aviation, the two-step operation of making airplanes possible. You have to build the airplane before you can fly it. In software terms, you have to have the machine learn something. I'm not talking about the hardware. I'm talking about once you've built the hardware, the, the AI-infused rack, the algorithm itself has to learn. The machine learning phase is building the knowledge that you then use to do inference with. So in order for AI to recognize pictures of cats, for example, or recognize cancer in an, in an X-ray. Uh, in order to do that, the algorithm has to see thousands, millions, sometimes billions of images and learn what to recognize. And then once it's learned, then that, that algorithm that's learned is used to do the inference to look at your slide or look at, your, look at a picture, say, that's a cat, it's a dog, whatever, navigate a car. So there's a machine learning phase and there's the inference phase. In the last uh, podcast I did in this, I focused on the machine learning phase because the numbers are already crazy big, right? The the uh, energy cost to teach an algorithm to uh, solve a Rubik's cube, um, the electricity used to do the learning was equal to the amount of electricity that you would consume driving a Tesla a million miles. The company that did that a couple of years later were the ones that released the first version of ChatGPT. And it appears based on published literature that the first version of ChatGPT used an amount of electricity equal to driving 5 million Tesla miles just to do the first phase of learning for the first version of ChatGPT. And you have to keep, you know, most things you have, once you've learned Rubik's Cube, you've learned it once. You don't have to learn it again. But for most things in life, you have to keep learning. It's true in humans. It's also true in machines. So the, the learning phase doesn't end. It's sort of iterative. It goes on, on and off. But turns out that's the least important. That's like uh, 
the learning phase of machine learning of AI is equivalent to building an aircraft. It's building the algorithm. The, the aircraft itself uses far more energy flying it than it used to build it, even though it's made out of aluminum. It's true in artificial intelligence. The inference phase, based on the technical literature so far, the inference phase looks like it uses at least 10 times more energy that is using the tool. Once the machine learning has learned the task, once it's learned to write clever sonnets, once, then you doing that over and over again in different ways, the inference use phase uses at least 10 times more energy than the learning, the build it phase. So the question you'd have to have in your head is two things. What are the number of use cases and how often will they be used? And what are the number of things that we want to learn something about? Both of them have to do with the amount of data we're collecting. Both of them have to do with how much how much it is we want to learn about the nature of reality, the nature of systems, the nature of manufacturing, of supply chains, or put differently. It has to do with how much data we can collect and want to collect to feed in as raw material to machine learning and then use what we learned in inference to better operate or better discover or better or better or do or do things with greater efficiency, including green goals, but not just that, including medical goals or educational goals. We'll talk more in a future podcast of what one will can do with AI. But right now we're just sticking on the question of of the machines that operate it and the clear fact that we have some ideas of what to do with it, but we don't know what people are in fact going to do with it any more than this was probably a, a reasonable analogy. Any any more than it was 1984, it's the advent of the Mac, uh, the Apple Mac, which arguably that plus the IBM PC contemporaneous with that was the kickoff of the personal computer era, both desktop and then 20 years later, you know, the smartphone, the, the handheld computer. But it, the kickoff phase was roughly mid-80s. You imagine trying to guess all the uses for computing, uh, mobile and desktop computing, uh, and guess the total demands and total benefits in 1984? No one guessed, uh, except maybe the small exception. A few people knew it was a big deal, but guessing what specific applications would be, who would use it for what, that we would not just have e-commerce, but all, all manner of businesses and social systems from Uber and social media to new classes of, uh, of, of of medical discovery. Very hard to guess the specifics, except it was a big deal. And there was essentially an unlimited appetite to put bits to work. We are, uh, and it's not it's not a stretch of the, analogy, of the analogy, we are essentially at 1984 equivalent terms when it comes to AI and what, what it's going to be used for and guessing how much it's going to expand, except to say by a lot. One way to guess how much it will expand, because what AI feeds on is data and bytes, because as we collect data about things, about processes, as we collect data, we use the data to do the learning. We do use the data to do the analysis. We use the data to improve efficiency and, again, to improve discovery. I, 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 let, me, let me digress uh, briefly into the worlds of data and the quantity of data that we might yet want to create or might want to collect, might want to use as raw material uh, for machine learning and artificial intelligence. An indication of how fast the market 
is creating, using, and transporting data. An indication of that scale of that can be seen in the names of, of big numbers. That is, there's so much growth in such a high velocity of growth in the magnitude of data that we want to collect, but I think it's essentially infinite, but that we want to collect that we've actually had to create new names for big numbers. That's one way of thinking about the magnitude of the appetite for growth in AI to process data can be seen inversely by looking at the magnitude of data that we are creating in our society now. And you see that derivatively, derivatively by looking at nomenclature. I mean, numbering and counting is, is maybe the, one of the oldest activities of civilization. It may be one of the oldest of humanity's skills. Uh, I'm going to digress on some nomenclature because it says something about where we're going. And just a couple minutes here to think about framing this idea and the paradigm of infinite data. And if you think about the kinds of names we use to describe big numbers, it's really quite a it's really a, an echo or a reflection of the technological progress over human history. I mean, historians think that the, the idea of formal numbering, you know, naming big numbers, because humans, ever since they've been able to reason, have counted things. It's how we keep track of what we own, literally. I'm sure people in prehistory cared about what they own, whether it was their their cave, uh, the amount of firewood they gathered or their, their piece of meat uh, or, you know, a bu bushel of bushel of whatever they collected in way of fruit, it counted things. Uh, we, we think that the uh, Sumerians were the ones who formalized the idea of creating names for numbers. And the Egyptians were the first to create a word for a really large number, a number that, that at least at that time was unimaginably large. They created, they created the, uh, the, the name, translated into English, of course, for uh, the number 1 million. And, um, the names for bigger numbers actually came much more recently in history. It's kind of, it's kind of, it's kind of interesting. And what we did is we created, uh, you know, from million to, to billions, and we use prefixes. And so in the data world and in, in engineering and science world, we use prefixes for a thousand and a million by using kilo as the prefix for thousand, mega as the prefix for million, and that's the way we do data counting. And then giga. You all know this because you know about gigabytes, but gigit is the prefix for a billion. So each each time there's an increment of a thousandfold increase for each of the named numbers. And a trillion is a tera, you know, a terabyte, right? And then after that, I mean, by the way, the, the trillion, the terabyte, wasn't named until 1960. The, the kilo, the kilo prefix goes back a long way. You know, a kilo something, a kilo, they weren't bytes then, but uh but the prefix kilo to describe a thousand dates back 300 years, but the prefix mega only dates back a hundred years and the prefix giga and terra only date back to 1960s, 60 years, roughly. 1975 was when we, we had the official creation of the new prefixes for the, so the data, the data era where you live in, where we generate quantities of things that have never had to be counted before. So we created the prefix, peta, which is a thousand gigas, right? So petabytes, a thousand gigabytes. We created then the uh, exabyte, which is a thousand petabytes. And in 1991, the word zeta, a zettabyte was created, which is a 
thousand petabytes. So these are big numbers. And then after that, we got a new one, which came along. A thousand, a thousand zettabytes is a yottabyte. So we're moving. The internet operates in the hundreds of zettabytes a year. So we already have an internet and a cloud system that is, in effect, used up our second biggest ever number, the zettabyte. The biggest number after that, that's a thousand times bigger than a zetta, is a yottabyte. So we are on the cusp of a yottabyte era. And in fact, there's a new group called Yada, which I've joined the advisory board of, by the way. And I'll, I'll put a link to them at the uh, at the website as well, so you can go see what they're up to. So we're uh, we're about to leave the zettabyte era to the yottabyte era. The zettabyte era is a thousand times more data than the zettabyte era. The, the zettabyte era is a thousand times more data than the petabyte era, which came t- 10 years before it. You kind of get where I'm going here. Thousandfold increases every 10 years in the amount of data just wipes out a you know 50%, 500% increases in uh, energy efficiency. There's a lot of data. By the way, after Yottabyte, a lot of computer scientists were hoping the next named number would be called a Brontobyte. A thousand Yottas would be a Brontobyte. Unfortunately, the uh, unimaginative bureaucrats in the um, Paris-based International Bureau of Weights and Measures Last year, they they officially released a name for a thousand yottabytes, which they called you know, pathetically, anemically, the Ronabyte. Uh, I'm disappointed. I was hoping for Brontobyte because you can see how much fun you would have with the visuals. Anyway, my point my point on this sort of digression into the scale of these numbers is that they're literally unimaginable numbers. So it's cr- the crazy big numbers, and AI feeds on that and will amplify that the amount of demand we could have one will have humanity has for for data is unlimited unlike anything else in history any other product in history any other service in history we have with data something that is has a demand metric that's unlimited we know the limits to the maximum number of air miles that can ever be flown um you know, roughly speaking in upper boundaries you could assume all of humanity had the wealth of america and flew as often as Americans, because most Americans that fly don't want necessarily fly a lot more than they already do. People will have only so many hours in a year. So roughly speaking, we could put an upper boundary on the total number of air miles. We could put an upper boundary on the total number of ton miles of stuff we want to move around, you know, within an order of magnitude or so. We have no idea what the upper bound is and the number of yottabytes or ronabytes or brontobytes the world will want to consume and process through AI. In fact, that's that's the story of our that's the story of our century. Frankly, it's it's the it's why I'm so fascinated by it. It's why I've written about it. Why why I wrote a book about it, and why we're talking about the energy feature of it because it's a good thing that 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 man is unlimited because it's the it is a it's a, one of the most remarkable features of our era in terms of being promising for economic growth for solving all manner of problems, not the problems of human relationships talking about technical problems and, me- and mechanical problems and environmental problems and discovery problems and healthcare problems. The expansion of our ability to collect and process data that's accelerated by AI is the single most promising thing that's happened in a century and the progress of, of humanity. It's a big deal. So I don't see the energy consumption of it as a problem. I see it as an indication of promise. However, um, 
count me as um, cautious and cynical um, that the governments will get around to worrying about the energy feature of it. That's just the nature of the beast and the time we live in. So welcome to the Yadabite era. Um, it's going to be fueled by and processed in AI-infused data centers and machines that will make all manner of things more interesting and better. It will cause problems, too. I'm, I'm an optimist, but not 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 not, na not naive. But the Yadabite era is going to be very different than the Zettabyte era we're leaving, and it will be because of artificial intelligence and the cloud computing fusing the and democratizing the opportunities and possibilities. And it's going to use a lot of energy, a whole lot of energy, which will worry some people. It doesn't worry me. I think we'll be just fine. In fact, we'll use the machines to figure out how to produce more energy more efficiently. So that's enough uh, about um, the absence of a recognition of reality of energy use of AI in the latest presidential executive order and a return to the ineluctable, strange world of bits and atoms and energy used by AI. Uh, we'll talk about energy used by robots in a future podcast, by the way, that too, because that's another domain of in intrigue, fascination, and opportunity that's not being counted in the usual forecasts of where the world is going. And it's directly related to everything I've been talking about. So it's going to be interesting, the political part of it and the technical part. And I am stubbornly optimistic that we will navigate the conflicts and have growth that the government's not going to throttle uh, AI by throttling its energy appetite. Maybe that's how I should optimistically consider the successful lobbying by the tech community at keeping an energy throttle out of the executive order. So on that note, uh, if you, again, are enjoying and listening to these podcasts, email me, give us a ranking, a rating, um, prefer compliments, but I'll take I'll take uh, criticism. I've been, been getting uh, some interesting emails from many of you uh, in recent months, and some I've over, I will I have responded to. I've responded to every email I've received. You can find me through my tech-pundit.com website or through the Manhattan Institute website, and I will uh, always respond to emails and questions, assuming they're not insults. I'm happy to take criticism, and looking forward to talking with you again in the next episode of The Last Optimist. <laughs>